Our democracy has been tested in recent years, but uh, with their votes, uh, the American people have spoken and proven once again that democracy is who we are. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. But uh, I felt good during the whole process. I felt we were going to do fine. While any seat lost is painful, some good Democrats didn't win the last night. Democrats had a strong night. Welcome to the Progress Texas Happy Hour. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Progress Texas Happy Hour in this post-election sort of special. Is, is special a good way to put it? We're going to find out, I suppose. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Mosier, uh, for this run of the show. Welcoming our President Ed Espinosa, Managing Director Brett Isaacs, Digital Manager Sam Gonzalez, and a regular recurring and always welcome guest, Texas Blue Action Democrats President Kerry Collier-Brown is with us today. Uh, it's terrific to have all of you with us. We have a lot to unpack coming out of what feels rather familiar to a lot of us long-term progressives here in Texas. In some ways, we got shellacked in the last uh, couple of days in the election. There are actually a lot of really positive things to pull out of this, though. And so if you're in the same boat that I've been in the last few days, which is not a very happy boat at all, we hope to bring you some information over the course of the podcast. It'll make you feel better about the future, uh, figure out our strategy moving forward and all of that. The, uh, The war is absolutely not over. Uh, But, you know, now that we're here and now that there is no impending immediate election or immediate agenda in front of us, we can kind of cut loose and really uh, try to pick this thing apart in particular. And I think for that, we absolutely need some liquid encouragement and liquid lubrication. And thus we are drinking beers, uh, as we like to do at the beginning of the Progress Texas Happy Hour. Uh, Carrie, call your brown. I'll let you go first since you're the guest. Are you having a beverage this afternoon? I am, but I'll confess, it's just, you know, fizzy water because I'm trying to catch up on work work after (laughs) focusing so much on election stuff over the last couple of weeks. So I'm staying hydrated, but, you know, no alcohol yet for me. So y'all are going to have to make up for me. And staying sharp and staying professional, I might add. Hey, Brett Isaacs, how about you? What's in your cup over there? So Carrie and I are kind of killing your vibe a little bit, Chris, because um, I also just have a sparkling water in my KUT koozie. Um, Yeah, I had a a few few beers on election night and now I'm just, you know, calming down because the fun thing about Progress Texas and this work is that it doesn't stop just because election day is over. So I still have things I need to do um, after this podcast. So I'm just drinking my HEB brand uh, grapefruit sparkling water, citrus. Makes mm-hmm. sense, although it is uh, un- undeniably lame. Uh, Ed Espinoza, <laughs> what are you drinking? So mean, so mean. I am drinking, uh, this is probably the first repeat appearance of a beer that I've had on the pod. This is a Zilker Brewing Company, which is a local uh, craft brew here in Austin. This is the Parks and Rec Ale. Uh, Parks and Rec Pale yep. Ale. Yep. And yep. solid. Uh, just slipped out of the koozie, which I think I will need today because we're going to. And here's your ASMR. Beautiful. Not your best. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> All right. Is that how we're starting? Is that how we're starting? Sam, what's going on over there, drink-wise? The theme for all of us this election cycle. (laughs) Is this how we're doing? Well, this is what I'm doing. Uh, uh, Since this is my first uh, election cycle um, working in politics, uh, I want to imagine a world where there are no laws. So there are no laws when you are drinking White Claws. It is a natural lime flavor. And uh, I'll, I'll help with the ASMR. Hopefully this will satisfy all the people that like the little crack. Oh, I can't. My fingers... That was ah, very good. That was very nice. good. That was good. No, that's pretty good. I thought that was good. Good for my end. Uh, I will say I've been kind of trying to drown my Texas political sorrows by focusing on fun things that are happening in places like Colorado, where Lauren Boebert is currently sweating her tail off right at the moment. And so I'm having a nice good old-fashioned Coors Banquet beer. Straight <laughs> Banquet! Out of, straight out of Golden, Colorado. Banquets are nice. So let's get to it here. Man, I tell you what. Uh, I have been in a, a, a place where... I didn't really want to be, you know, I, I don't know how many of us as progressives and Democrats really got our hopes really, really up. I know we gave it our damnedest. We had, I thought was a great slate of candidates. Uh, I thought we, we had, a, we had a really good shot. Uh, it turns out that the math just did not go our way, at least here in Texas, uh, for a variety of reasons that we'll get into. But uh, let's go ahead and let's start on the bright side a little bit. And this is a place that I've had to go intentionally to stop thinking about what's gone down statewide here in Texas. And that is the national uh, situation where this uh, much ballyhooed red wave 
uh, largely did not uh, materialize at all. Brett, let's start with you for a look at what's going on on the national level. Uh, I had to intentionally drag my eyes away from Texas and focus on the national level because that's kind of where the good news is. Tell us about it. Okay, so elections are complicated beasts and you're always going to come out of a night with wins and losses. So this is not to discount any of the um, any of the things that we'll be talking about later, but I do want to give folks just zoom out and give us a look at national and how we really should have had a worse night for Democrats and progressives. Midterms are difficult elections. Turnout is much lower usually than a presidential, and on top of that, the president's party always historically always loses seats. The one uh, counter example is in 2002, which is right after 9-11, when there was a rally around the flag effect and people gave George Bush more seats. But always, President's party loses a ton of seats. So that didn't happen. Republicans did not come up with the gains that they were expecting and advocating for. And what they did come up with, I really want to note, was largely due to redistricting. They were not winning on the strength of their messages. They were winning because of structural advantages that they got from gerrymandering, which is a very key point. Progressive issues are mainstream issues. Abortion, democracy, voting rights, all of these issues really drove voters to the polls and put a balance in government. So I think that this is really worth noting for a number of reasons, the first one being that this puts Democrats in a stronger position for 2024 when President Trump very well, very likely will be on the ballot. Um, And this was the first election in the past three years that he wasn't on the ballot. So this was really a test of Democratic messaging and Democratic strength. Young people, college-educated women, suburban voters turned out in force for Democrats nationwide. And I think this is particularly important when we look at states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and other states, not only where we got um, wins in the Michigan governor's race or the Pennsylvania Senate race, but also in the state legislatures. Because as we know in Texas, state legislatures have incredible power to determine what happens in our lives and what how the agenda is set. And this is also key for 24 when we think about election deniers. Election deniers lost big this midterm. A lot of them were not put into offices that they were expecting to be put in. And when we think about legislatures turning Democratic, this is really big for uh, strengthening our electoral systems and trust amongst voters for the future. So while Democrats may lose the House, and it's possible may lose the Senate, although there's a good chance that Democrats keep the Senate, Going forward, this is a strong endorsement of progressive policies. This is a strong endorsement of progressive messaging. And this shows that Republicans have gone too far and voters are sick of it. Well, I think that, look, first of all, did the election denier running for governor in Arizona, did she win or lose? They haven't called it yet. They haven't called it. Okay. Um, As far as what happened this year, look, Democrats weathered the storm. It was not a red wave per se, Democrats still lost some seats at the House level. Like you said, Brett, not uncommon. Um, But heading into a president's majority party in his first term, there are lots of historical precedents for that. Weathering the storm is really the best you can do. So many presidents have lost seats in in their first term. Obama, Clinton, Reagan, Bush, uh, talking about the first Bush. The fact that we were able to weather the storm sets us up for 2024, which I realize for a lot of people who really were hungry for wins, maybe that's not enough, but I think that that historically puts us in a better position nationally than any other midterm in a president's first term. Democrats did not win in terms of gaining, you know, huge majorities in the House and Senate, but there were key races that were won. If we look at the um, Pennsylvania Senate race, that's a big one. There were also some House districts that should not have been competitive, that should not have gone Democratic, and they did. And that's a really important point. You know, it's not just about holding the line, but it's also about making gains, especially when Republicans have gerrymandered to a really really high degree and they have a lot of structural advantages 
again, you know, we're this isn't just any midterm year. We have record high inflation. Biden's approval levels are low. And yet we didn't see the shellacking that was really expected. And that really comes down to the issue of Roe being overturned and the issue of voters wanting to protect democracy and seeing the Republican Party as way too extreme. No shellacking. Not at no shellacking. Not at the national level, anyway. There were also, I think, three states, and I'm forgetting which ones they were right now. Michigan was one of them where they now flipped the state legislature and or the governor so that they Democrats have a trifecta in three new states um, that we didn't have before. And that's going to be important going into 2024. I will also say that I think a lot of, I hear a lot of the time that Democrats, I, I get that I pay attention to politics to a ridiculous degree, so I don't, Maybe this doesn't confuse me as much as I was about to say, but I understand that I hear a lot of Democrats say this and I understand it. They say, well, if we, I might not want Biden to run in 24, but I don't know who would take his place. You know, who's high profile? And the fact is we just saw so many Democratic incumbents and stars shore up their um, bases of support. And Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan is a great example. Not only did she prove her strength against her Republican challenger, but she also managed to flip the Michigan legislature blue. And I think there are a lot of promising na uh, Democrats who are garnering national attention that makes me optimistic for the future of the party and the future leaders of the party. And I think people have a pessimistic view of that, which I understand, but if you look a little closer, there's a lot of reasons to think that the party is in a strong place. I mean, look, guys, the fact of the matter is Biden's like whatever. A lot of people think of Biden as whatever, and we did this well. Like they talk about the red wave. Uh, we should have got beaten a lot more places, and that just goes to show you that because we didn't, we have, like you said, Ed, room to grow. We're not catching up and going. We're actually stopped and now we can go further into the next election. Dark Brandon wins. Let's go Dark Brandon. So uh, as we begin to transition, as we all knew we would in this podcast towards an analysis of what happened in Texas, it ain't a pretty picture. Let's start, you know, let's ease into it, shall we say, by covering a few of the things that happened within the borders of Texas, but also within the borders of our progressive centers, which are, of course, our major metro areas. There were some good things happening in places like uh, Austin and the immediate area, Harris County, uh, the Metroplex. Ed, some of those high points, please. Yeah, so in Harris County, uh, County Judge Lena Hidalgo won re-election by the skin of her teeth. It was very close. Um, up in Dallas County, they flipped a seat on the county commission. It's now, I believe, all Democratic. There was one Republican before. Here in Austin, uh, Celia Israel and Kirk Watson advanced to the runoff in the race for mayor. Now, what's important there is Celia coming in first. Celia Israel is a member of the LGBTQ community. We often talk about her as a state rep and as a Latina, and those things are obviously very important in her profile. But the fact that you have someone from the LGBTQ community who is the coming in first place in the race for mayor in Austin, I think, is notable. Uh, there was also some news out of Hayes County. Uh, Carrie, you uh, informed us on that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you saw out of Hayes? Yeah, um, so I think all of the uh, countywide races flipped from Republican to Democrat. So I think some county commissioners, wow. the DA... Yeah, I mean, Hayes has been trending blue for a while. Um, and, you know, for all the reasons that we talked about before. But, um, it, it, yeah, I mean, I, that was definitely some good news uh, out of a suburban county that has been moving more blue and it had an impact on those lower ballot races. I would say the transition over time, at least in the recent history of Hayes County, is a lot more profound than that even of Williamson County. Hayes has been, those were farms down there just a few years back. That was literally kind of rural area down there outside of, you know, San Marcos. Uh, the smaller cities of uh, of Hayes and Buda popping up and and you know are starting to develop in a really interesting and rapid way and that's that's actually rather remarkable if they actually manage to do to pull a sweep down there that's pretty great so let's transition from that to what we have dreaded to talk about and I'm just gonna lay it out for the way I've been thinking in the last couple of days I've gotten some some you know private therapy from Ed Espinosa on this over the last couple of days uh, <laughs> I I decided coming out of the election. I was wondering, is the statewide field, is that game one in which Democrats 
simply are outmatched simply by numbers, simply by the, the, the political infrastructure that's in place, the way the districts are drawn, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I, I began to kind of start to wallow in that a little bit. And I have to say, I have a couple of things I want to read real quick that I've pulled from uh, from local newspapers here in, in Austin that kind of seem to back this up. Uh, Austin Chronicle says things like Beto O'Rourke raised more money than Greg Abbott in the home stretch, more than any Democratic statewide candidate in history, beating his own 2018 record and still lost by just over 11 points. Uh, the Austin American statesman, John Moritz, says Abbott's victory further cements Texas's position as the largest reliably Republican state and reinforces what has become a running truism that the only battle in statewide races is the Republican primary. And that's, I've started to think, maybe we should just be focusing on where our territory is just in the cities. Do we have any kind of a chance to, in the future, you know, compete on the statewide level? It's, it, in some ways, it seems hopeless. I hope you guys will change my mind. To answer your question, Chris, on competing on the statewide level, yes, 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 1,000%, yes, this state will go Democratic. Building political power is something that takes a lot of time, especially in a state that is dominated by Republicans who want to stop people from voting and want to entrench their power as much as possible. No one ever said it would be easy, and if they did, they're selling you something. Like, it is not an easy game. Texas Democrats and Texas progressives have known this for years. But just because it didn't happen this year doesn't mean it won't happen. And I do want to provide some context that I hope will just help our listeners understand, you know, the meaning of this race. To start, again, as we said at the top, a midterm year is a really hard year for turnout. It's just not what it is in a presidential year at any capacity, and that hurts Democrats. Well, it it tends to, um, especially in Texas. Additionally, when we think about the top of the ticket, Beto O'Rourke, I don't think that any other candidate in Texas could have done what he did. But at the same time, he's not the same candidate he was in 2018. Beto was up against Ted Cruz, who was very unpopular. But let's think about this. Abbott was also very unpopular. And yes, the revolution doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. But when the fuck does it happen, right? Because... Beto spent $100 million. Let me, let me throw some cold water on this here. Beto spent $100 million to do two points better than Lupe Valdez. That's fucked up, right? I mean, so we have no. to ask ourselves, like, Ugh. is it the messaging? Is it the organization? What is it going to take for us to get there? Is it the de- We know the Democratic Party has problems. That's not new. But the Democratic Party is not for a lack of trying. Right? Well, I mean, it's there. It's, it's underfunded. Really? <laughs> no, well, look, I didn't, I didn't, well, but I, I'm not saying that they're necessarily doing the best thing, but they're trying to do what they can. And then groups like yours, Carrie, Blue Action Democrats, I think, are very important in this process. Progress Texas is important in this process. But, man, we can, we can win at the regional level. We held the line uh, at, the, at the legislative level. But at the, at the state level, man, it's, it's, we haven't been able to solve this Rubik's Cube for a long time. And I'll tell you, man, this is my sixth election cycle here. And it's just, it, it's, I don't know what the answer is. And I, I think we really have to challenge ourselves. I, Sorry, I know I just monologued that. Can, but Well, can I add just slightly to what Ed said? And this is in a situation where abortion rights have been taken away, where the grid failed on us. Uh, there, there were so many different, you know, semi-catastrophic things that you would have thought would have helped our side in this election. And none of that seems to have mattered. So I, um, you know, just to offer, again, context, not at risk of sounding like an optimist, this isn't good. I'm not pleased with what happened. And I, I agree with you, Ed. Yeah, and I, and I don't so, think you are saying that. It's so confounding to see all these big events happen and still not have a change in leadership. But to offer context, you know, you, you've mentioned that Greta Abbott is unpopular. Sitting governors are the hardest people to defeat. Incumbents are challenging to defeat. Incumbent governors are the hardest incumbents to defeat. Greg Abbott's unpopularity did not make as much of a dent as we would have hoped. But when we think about it in the bigger picture, that makes sense. Additionally, I think that Beto's strategy, from what I know of it, was similar to 2018 in that he was going around the state to all these different counties, particularly in rural areas, which have Democratic voters. No one is saying they don't. But at the same time, you know, he runs the risk of spending a lot of time trying to convince independents rather than maybe spending as much time in the suburbs trying to drum up 
turnout in a place like Harris County where, you know, we lost turnout in as compared to 2018. I'm not saying the race would have changed if he had done that, but it's certainly worth contemplating that the strategy, you know, maybe just was looking at, wasn't looking at the state in terms of like, where are the new voters? Where can we get out the Democratic vote? So I I want to point out that there were 9.6 million registered Texas voters who did not show up. 9.6. That is nearly double the number who voted for Greg Abbott and Beto. Um, Here's the other thing that I find really interesting that has been largely absent from all of the, you know, post-election commentary and, and messaging that I've seen is that Beto got almost exactly the same number of votes, 3.5 million that um, the Democratic nominee in 2018 got against Greg Abbott. Almost exactly the same, 3.5 million. Abbott got 200,000 fewer votes than he got last time. He went from 4.6 million to 4.4 million. So that's why that, you know, so we closed that gap by two points. We're about a 13 point race in uh, 2018 to an 11 point race in 2022. We stayed the same. We did not get more people out. And Beto got 500,000 fewer votes than he got when he ran for Senate that time. But I think there's a story here is Abbott lost 200,000 votes that he had in 2018. Uh, that is that is part of the story. And then that 9.6 million. So here's the other thing that I think is real interesting and, and provides the path of where to focus. Our friend Bet, uh, Bruce Elfont, who is the amazing voter registrar in Travis County, put out some graphs there, you know, on his Facebook page that is, you know, public. I incur- and I tweeted it out, which did this interesting bar chart cuz, you know, I'm I like pictures that shows, you know, by county the top 10 counties in order of top uh 10 county voter registration, which shows um uh Travis County's at the top there, Bear County, Dallas County, Harris County all go very blue, but their voter registration lags. Similarly, for percent voter turnout, those registered voters who actually showed up this time, Travis is up at the top. You know who's at the bottom of that? El Paso, Hidalgo, Harris, Dallas, Bear, all lower voter registration and all lower lower voter turnout. If those counties had had the same um, success in voter registration and in voter turnout that Travis County does, Beto could have won. And he also looks at the um, the margin. So just the Beto's margin of victory out of all of that. His margin of victory in Travis County was 215,000 votes because we've got like 97% registration and we had 52% turnout. The margin of victory in Harris County was 102,000 votes. Dallas was 166,000 and Bear was 88,000. And that correlates specifically to, you can see, because they have lower voter registration and lower voter turnout. So... To, to me, that's the path forward. But two things need to happen is where are we going to go find those 9.6 million people to turn them out? Like, why are we going and searching for 15 votes in the middle of nowhere? Like, we absolutely should support the rural counties and, uh, and uh, we need more infrastructure. But if we're focusing on where we're going to go for the next two years to get more on people who already agree with us, people who would vote Democrat if they, you know, if we could turn them out and then what's the most effective way to do that is in those top counties. Those other six top counties are where the most of those votes are. How do we do that? I think that, you know, there is, we're never gonna win a statewide race until we fix the lack of infrastructure problem on the Democratic side. Republicans do this. Republicans have a base vote of around 2 million votes. I think ours is around 500,000 votes. We have to hustle harder because we fucking make everybody start over every two years from scratch. And it's all candidate focused and we start too late and it's totally transactional with voters. And the better way to do that is to build a relationship with those voters through neighborhood organizing and through relational organizing. The best people to get those reluctant voters out to vote is someone they already know. And I guarantee you that we all know folks who still didn't show up. I mean, that's why we did the 2 million Texans, you know, relational project where everyone can see who their voters are who haven't showed up and given them and give them a nudge. Carrie, you know, I have been a big evangelist about digging up votes and in big urban counties for years. The problem is, is just, we just haven't been able to do it, right? Have and we like, tried? I, like I think before we have 64 tried. before an election? 
I think we have. Maybe we haven't tried enough. Maybe I think there's definitely more to do. But like, this is the thing. Abbott's votes were down. Beto's votes were down. Turnout was down everywhere in the state. The lowest attrition amongst any group were the small towns and rural communities around the state. They were down by 4%. Democratic counties were down by like 9.5%. Republican counties were down by 7%. Swing counties, almost 10%. And, you know, I mean, we keep having this, this conversation as a community. is like, what can we do in small towns and rural communities? I don't know the answer to that. And I also do not necessarily agree that Beto going to 254 counties was an efficient thing to do in 2018. I thought it was good news. I think it helped him get votes from other places by doing that. But the thing is, those areas are important and Republicans know it and they have a strategy there and we don't. And that's one one part of our problem, layered on top of the infrastructure problems that you talked about, Carrie. And then there are some messaging issues. Like we did great on guns, abortion, and the grid. We got killed on immigration. No, I'm sorry, let me take it back. We got killed on border security, very different, and the economy. And in 30 years, we have not had a good response on the border. And until we do, until, Carrie, you said until we have good year-round infrastructure, we're not gonna win a statewide election, and I agree. Until we have a good answer on the border, we're also not going to win a statewide election. And I would even throw an answer to the rural parties, the rural areas, even if that means overwhelming those votes with, with votes from the urban areas. But like, there are so many, th- those are three things that we need that we don't have. Governor Abbott put on a huge push uh, down in the valley uh, over the this election and in fact uh, announced his victory down in McAllen a couple of nights ago. Uh, a lot of those counties down there, though, did actually go uh, blue this time around. Do we have anything to say about what happened down there? Like it was all they hot better, air. It, totally, 100% hot air. They did not yeah. win the RGV. The, there were three congressional races um, up for grabs. Democrats retained two of those. Uh, the one that they the, the Democrats lost is not actually in the RGV. It stretches all the way up to San Antonio, and it was drawn to elect a Republican. The three seats that Republicans won this year, one in the House, one in the Senate, and one in the Congress, were all won before a single vote was cast. They were all won in redistricting this year, including that two of them, which were in South Texas. Back to structural advantages. Yeah, right. Uh, and I want to posit this even further, because, Ed, you brought this up, and it sounds crazy to think four years ahead from now. But a fourth-term Abbott, like you said, any fourth-term governor is like a is a moonshot, right, you were saying? Like, that's not very popular. Gen Z is mad as hell also. That's one other thing that we have to really kind of recognize nationally and in Texas. They showed up. They showed up in droves because they do not want uh, anti-abortion policies. They do not want their classmates being attacked in high school for being LGBTQ. They're going to be, I think, another X factor that we're not quite considering yet that we need to jump on very quickly because they're going to be a force to reckon with beyond boomers because because look at four years from now how old are boomers going to be we can talk about them for as long as we can but time is going to pass time is going to continue on and the new up-and-coming folk we really really got to make sure that we're giving them something to fight for too they did not show up in the numbers that we need but it's not their fault Uh, the other thing we've not talked about here is voter suppression and and how hard it was for gen z to vote um, and that's something that we're going to have to start working on early to address. Like I'm all the mamas that I know that have college kids, you know, trying to get them through the hurdle of voting by mail was nearly impossible. And the the rate of rejection of mail ballot applications was sky high. And then trying to pivot and show those kids how they can vote um, where they are in their county. Do you know that they can only vote on a limited ballot, which means just statewide candidates during early voting. And they they can only do it in one location that is nowhere near the campus. And these kids don't have you know transportation. They don't have cars. Like just navigating through that is by design. Like it is by design to make it extremely hard for young people to vote. They, they, a couple cycles ago, the legislature banned mobile vote locations on college campuses. They do not allow student IDs to be a valid form of voter ID. Uh, we are one of only a few states, I want to say it's like eight states that don't have online voter registration yet. And that, more than anything, I think is the biggest form of voter suppression. It starts at the very beginning of the chain, which is 
voter registration. Uh, yes, these, these things are very frustrating. As we're talking college kids, as we're talking Gen Z, we begin to talk about, you know, the future, which I think is what a lot of folks have tuned into this uh, podcast episode to, to get some, you know, some encouragement about and some information about and at least, you know, be able to see the path forward. Uh, what do we see as, you know, the immediate future plans of Texas Democrats and Texas uh, progressives? Let's start with Kerry Collier-Brown on that one. Where, where do we go from here? Uh, we have to start building the infrastructure now. Like we keep doing the same thing where we don't do that and we keep doing things the same way and expecting a different result. And we're never going to get a different result until we do the things that the states that have flipped have done. And they have started early building the infrastructure and building the relationships with the voters they want to show up at the next election. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Our board member, Blaine Wessner, who actually started Progress Texas, he and I talked after the 2016 election and it was the period at the end of the year It was the period at the end of the year where we were planning for 2017 and funding in Texas was very hard to come by for groups like Progress Texas and a lot of other groups. And Blaine got very frustrated by it. And what he said was a phrase was, this is when infrastructure dies, when people give up on it after an election. You can't give up on it. You have to continue to dedicate and invest towards those things. I'll give you an example of people who have been very good at it. The Republicans, after the 2008 election, seemed like an irrelevant party that may not even survive. By 2010, they had taken back Congress. They had a strategy to block every judicial nominee that Obama had put up, and they were completely revived. They did it again in 2014. Um, We've seen Republicans take hits and bounce back because they just double down on things. I think that Democrats are good at reflecting and and making adjustments, but we're not always good at doubling down on things and sticking to a long-term plan. A lot of our plans tend to be short-term plans, and that's hurtful. Um, Going to a broader position, like who are our leaders? Who's the next person? They asked me this on Spectrum News the other night. Who's the leader of the party now? I'm like, well, it's hard to answer that on election night. But I would probably turn to somebody like Sam, who maybe not be able to tell us who the leader, the next leader is, but maybe... And, and Brett as well as, as our youngest members here, what do we need? What does the party need? What do, what do we, what do y'all look to that is going to put us in the right track? And, le- and before, before you answer, let me offer this. After the 2004 election, it looked like Democrats were going to be in the woods for a long time. We bounced back in 2006. After 2016, it looked like Democrats, I mean, we were shell-shocked after Trump had gotten elected. In 2018 ended up being one of the best election cycles for us nationwide and it started with the women's march in january of 2017 where do we go from here i don't know i'd like to hear from from our younger folks and and someone like sam who's newer to politics i think you may have a better more honest take than some of us who are a little more jaded the reality of it is you have to listen to your constituents and you have to listen to them early and often and you have to provide direct solutions to what they're asking for the thing is is that Young voters, they need a reason to be motivated. They need a reason to get off their phone and get off the Twitters and their Instagrams, whatever they're using, and go out and vote and make it like an actual physical thing for them to do. You know, something that's not just online. Obviously, not having online voter registration uh, hampers that. We really have to emphasize from the bottom down, one, how do we get them out to vote? How do we get them there? And then give them a reason to go. Give them a person that is listening to their needs. Um, honestly, the person I'm looking at, Lena Hidalgo, I'm looking at everything she does and how she operates her social media and how she is functioning in that space. And that can be a very good candidate moving forward if she has other further reaching ideals when it comes to politics. But you talk about listening to constituents, but, but don't you also think like big and bold ideas? Like I was never really a Bernie guy, but I appreciated how he just came out with big, bold issues that really not just motivated people, but like really excited people. I don't. Yeah. Because oh, because that's the question. I, that's the question I have, Ed, because being new to politics, like you said, I'm I'm still trying to gather what happened. I know we're trying to talk about what's moving forward, but I saw what we were doing in the work leading up to this election, which was how bad the Republican uh, nominees for all the all the races were and how much they won. So my what, what you're trying to ask me is like, well, make sense of it three days later. It's like, first of all, <laughs> I'm barely making sense of what happened just then. Save but us, also, Sam. Like, Save us. Because right, uh, the only thing that <laughs> that I'm trying to figure out is whatever it is, they whoever it is, whoever's running the the machine, the Democratic machine needs to let 
people know how badly everything is being ran. And, and, and it has to be abundantly clear, and, and we'll get into it on another podcast because this was actually my expertise. My focus was how do we reach people now that social media is in disarray? Facebook's down. Twitter's madness. Carrie Collier Brown had uh, two, two million texts. We, we, oh, we have an talk app about that. for that. Yes, <laughs> there's an app for that. There's, there's an, an app, app for that, that. which which uh, we'll expand upon because that that once again you've been touting and th- was this the first election that it was implemented? Yeah, yeah. the first uh, yeah in Texas. You know, so Ossoff had used it successfully in the runoff in 2021. Um, and on a much smaller scale. Um, and we're, we're talking about the Reach app. And, and how do you find the Reach yeah. app again? Uh, text 33339. You're going to text the word Reach to that number, and it'll give you a little bot to download the Reach app, and you'll join the 2 million, two million Texans campaign. Right. And, and you can actually use that app to get mad at the people who didn't vote this time. Because <laughs> yes. if you're upset, if you're upset, it's all public record, not who you voted for, but if they voted or not. That's, exactly. That is public. So... To answer the question finally, just to wrap that part up, it's pieces like that that we need. Whoever's utilizing those tools, whoever's utilizing actual events and mobility for communities that are actually like, there in the communities. What's I'm, up, I want to get beyond the tactics, beyond the events and the, the tech and all that stuff is good. But like that doesn't that supports the other stuff. It doesn't supplant the other stuff. And. You know, like when it comes to our, our big, bold leaders with ideas, who are they? And like, but you can who have are we all the for? ideas you want if you can't actually motivate the voters to show up. No, nobody's going to get elected unless you can figure out the best way to get to the people who already agree with them, who love Lena, who love, you know, all, all of those, the Beto, whoever it is. The problem is getting them to show up to vote, the motivating and persuading them to vote. They already agree. They already love them. It's getting them to show up. I think it's both. So you can't have one without the other. Brett, is there anybody in particular on your radar that you would peg as a as a future savior of us Texas progressives? Well, absolutely not. And that's because I'm not looking for a savior for there many no of savior. the same reasons that, you know, Carrie just articulated. I think there are many incredible people who could lead the party and be the be the front at the front. But I don't like cults of personality around politicians in particular. I never have. I love Bernie, but I hate so much of the like Bernie bro movement. So I'm not putting my faith in a single person. And I think a lot of people did that to Beto. And not only is he just as one human being not capable of fulfilling everyone's, you know, expectations of him on his own, but It's also just unfair to the folks on the ground and the infrastructure we're trying to build. But that being said, I do want to shout out some names because there are incredible progressive Texans doing amazing work. I'm thinking of Greg Kassar, who was just elected to Congress and who has an amazing following of young progressive folks. Congratulations, Greg. Greg's amazing. I'm thinking of Jasmine Crockett, who we love on this podcast, friend of Progress Texas, friend of Texans everywhere. I'm thinking of Lena Hidalgo, of course, Chris Hollins, who's running for mayor of Houston. He's fantastic. There are so many great people. Colin Allred, Mark Vesey, you know, Democrats across the state who have been doing incredible work, who are young, who have progressive ideals. And the challenge is creating the infrastructure, especially in the off years, to bolster them. And again, I just want to re-articulate that a lot of the national mood impacts the elections. And that is something we can't control. So the best thing we can do is try and pick good candidates and try and build as much infrastructure as possible to motivate voters. And also, I do just want to point out that we've been talking about previous elections as we've discussed, you know, Texas's political past and where we go from here. But in my understanding, there really haven't been that many cycles where Texas has been considered a competitive state in a lot of ways. I think that has just started to change where national dollars and attention start to come towards Texas and we stop seeing Texas as a Republican stronghold. So as that changes, continues to change and we get more attention and more bright young people, more, you know, bright young leaders who are coming to the state and investing in the state, I think we start to see 
the best of those both worlds. We start to see great people who can stand up and run for office in these ways. And we also start to see people willing to invest in and operate the infrastructure it takes to get them there. Brett talked about how like Texas is just now being seen as a battleground state. Um, I got news for you guys. We're not going to be seen as that for a while. We just got our asses handed to us. National organizations are not going to put money into Texas until we can demonstrate that it's competitive. They did it after 2020 because of what they saw in 2018. What they saw in 2022 doesn't give them reason to do this. And national organizations, look, these guys are stuck in old thinking. I guarantee you that national organizations will light money on fire, sending it to Iowa and Ohio. And those are two states that are not coming back. They will spend money in Florida. They still think Florida. Florida is a swing state. They still think Florida is a fucking swing state. Florida hasn't gone Democratic <laughs> for anything in like the past 10 years. Texas has had more opportunity and the elections have been closer than any of those states. But people's mindsets are such that they can't do it. They look at the size of the state yeah. without even realizing that the dearth of voters are in four counties. Yes. But this is the ball that we're up against. And it, this is why it's so hard to see these defeats in, in years like 2022, where we held the line at the legislative level and we've done OK at, this, at the national level. But these these numbers uh, here statewide, like we have to find the answer to this riddle. Is it the messaging? Yes. Is it the infrastructure? Yes. Is it the turnout? Yes. It's <laughs> so if you want to help, donate to Progress Texas. <laughs> you know, all the stuff that we're bemoaning, all of the stuff that uh, that we're enduring at this point has not been for a lack of a lot of really, really hard work being done by a lot of people. Uh, and I want to come around to a, a bit of a difficult question um, that I hope there are some decent answers for. We'll see. Uh, Beto O'Rourke has worked his ass off for how long now? For for six, seven years now trying to get something done. Uh, he has proven to be a terrific fundraiser. He's proven to be a tireless campaigner. He's a great guy. He's a terrific guy. He uh, he actually said, you know, coming uh, out of the, uh, the defeat a couple of days ago, um, that he was doing it in, in part for his kids. He wanted to be able to tell his kids someday that when it came down to it, when the battle was joined, what did he do? And he gave it his all. And I think, I think he absolutely can claim that. And I'll hand him that. What at this point, and I'll start with Carrie Collier-Brown since she's the guest, what's Beto's future? What does Beto do next? I don't know. Um, I don't think that he's going to go away. I think he loves this state too much. Um, I'm not sure. I Well, I don't anticipate that we're going to see him on a ballot anytime soon. Um, and I hope and I expect that we will see him uh, help build that infrastructure that we've been talking about. He can raise more money than anybody in Texas, hands down. And I think he still can, more than anyone. And he has the biggest megaphone. I hope that um, that gets focused more on empowering people to build relationships within their own networks of contacts and in their neighborhoods. Um, that, is, that is the key. And when he came back from the presidential election and he started Powered by People, he did some of that, but it still didn't do that thing. It still had people, you know, just sort of following Beto around all over the state. And to Brett's point, he is not our savior. I think he knows he's not our savior. We have to save ourselves. We are the cavalry. Beto's not going to save us. Lena's not going to save us. Greg's not going to save us. No candidate is. We have to do that work. Brett, kick it to you. What's next for Beto? Well, I second everything that Carrie said. Um, I don't think we'll see him on a ballot anytime soon. It's probably for the best. I'm sure he's burned out. And quite frankly, I'm a little burned out of, you know, the Beto Beto train at this point. And he's proven himself in a lot of ways, but it's challenging to lose three major races in the span of four years. So I think he could still do great things for Texas, but I do think that maybe that work will be, if not behind the scenes, then building infrastructure in the ways that Carrie mentioned. So, you know, I'll keep up with what he's got going on, but I think it's time for a new uh, vanguard, like to sort of take his place. I, I do think that 
he got a lot of unfair expectation from people of like, he is going to save Texas. And, you know, that's just not fair for so many reasons, um, in part because it meant that a lot of you know, the, the state's future and hopes hinge on one person. And that's a lot of pressure. And um, again, it, you know, campaigns start and end, and it doesn't really affect the infrastructure that's going to keep this movement going in the long term. So I'll be interested to see what happens, but I'm exci- I'm more excited in the broad term for what happens to Texas. Sam, uh, since you've, you're newest to this, as we've talked about of the group here, what's your perspective on Beto in terms of, because you were just, you've just been a voter in the first couple of cycles in this. And now yeah. how do you, how do you, how do you see Beto moving forward? I think that his best course of action, or at least what I would like him to see, see him do is become an analyst, become a talking head on news. And I want him to use the same kind of language and fervor that he had on the campaign trail, talking about motherfucker this and piece of shit that. I want him, no, but I want him to be a thorn in the side of Republicans the way he, you know that he wants him to be. Because he wants to call people, he wants to call Ted Cruz a bastard. He wants to call Greg Abbott a piece of shit. You know he does. And I want, and now that he's not running for anything, I want him to have the freedom to do that, to call them on their shit, to call them out on their policies, because he's in a unique position of being not only somewhat of a celebrity, very popular with young people. He went out and gave Casey Musgraves a beer at ACL, and there was people whispering in the back, was that Beto O'Rourke? I missed him. I missed him. Oh my goodness. Murmurs of young people. Yeah. And I go, wait, a a politician did this? I think that he, if he plays his cards right, can be very, very much a thorn in the side of Republicans if he decides decides to play it as that kind of villain, that Dark Brandon-esque type villain. I really wish that he would do that. And because of the actions he's done on the campaign trail, going to Evalde, vouching for them, he still has some actual political clout when it comes to actually getting down to business and trying to help the people of Texas, albeit in failed attempts. Ed, take us home, man. What do you think? What's next for Beto O'Rourke? I think that the, I don't know that he wants to be an analyst, but I do think that he enjoys media. And whether that means him getting a show somewhere or starting a podcast. Hey, I hear everybody can do it. I hear everyone's doing it. Um, I think that uh, uh, we have, Beto has done a lot for Texas. But Beto is also done when it comes to running in Texas. At least he's done for now. And that's not to slight him in any way. I think that he said as much on election night that he was done. He has personally put so much of himself out there over the last five years that the man deserves a break. Um, But I don't think we've seen the last of Beto O'Rourke, whether that means starting another advocacy organization, whether that's state or national, or doing something that's media-based. I think that... um, I think that he has a lot to offer, and I think he's going to offer it. And I do agree that he does want to call some people shitheads. And <laughs> I think I also I think he wants to call people shitheads, and I think he wants to go back and play some music. And um, I think I mean, he's going to do he all just, those things. He just becomes a touring musician. That'd be fun. Yeah, probably. So I it, it, I tell you what, for me, I feel better. I, as I mentioned at the top of this, I was I've been pretty down the last couple of days, and so I I'm I'm glad to be in the company of uh, of, of strong brave progressive folks like the four of you, uh, and uh, and all of us here at Progress Texas. I do want to uh, thank really really uh, Carrie Collier Brown for coming on and for all the stuff that uh, that she and Texas Blue Action Democrats and the two million Texans thing and the Reach app. The Reach app is an absolute blast to play with. By the way, even if you know if you just get in there and look at it, it just gives you a broader understanding of of you know where you are, where your community of people are. It's definitely something to pull down and at least play with a little bit. Uh, So Carrie, thank you for all the things that you guys have been doing. Despair, spreading despair is a form of voter suppression, especially in Texas where people think that their vote doesn't matter. And if they're being told that no matter what they do, it's not gonna matter, then they're not gonna show up. And so I think the important thing is um, we failed to win any statewide races again this time. But the important part is not that we failed, it's that what did we learn from it and what can we do differently for next time? Because there absolutely is a path, but we have to decide to do something different now. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. We have to fucking bend it. Yeah, it's active. (laughs) It is an activity. And I just wanna, you know, 
second everything that's been said and also say that like from a personal standpoint, I mean, I don't feel hopeless. Opposite. I like this this is a hard job. This is a hard industry to be in. You you take a lot of shit all the fucking time. Sorry, mom. <laughs> um but it's it's really challenging. It will break you if you let it, but it's not impossible. It's great things happen all the time. We see history being made every year. It's incredible. You get to meet people and hear their hopes and fears and learn what makes them tick. And we are building a better world because of that. And I don't feel hopeless at all. I feel, you know, upset at the results. It's not a good feeling, but we, every time we go through this, we get stronger and we, like we said, we learn from our mistakes and we will be here tomorrow, the day after, the day after that, whatever comes, working to make this state a place that we are all proud to live in and that we know where we can care for each other. So everything that's said, I second it and I just want y'all to know that like we're here and I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I certainly, you know, am not hopeless. Far from it. I agree hundred percent. It's that's only great. impossible until it's done. Exactly. And it gets done all the time. Things change. You know, it's crazy. And we get to be a part of that. So let's go. Great way to wrap it up. Thank you so much to Carrie Collier Brown and to Ed Espinosa and to Sam Gonzalez and to Brett Isaacs. Uh, we hope you all feel better. And uh, let's uh, let's maybe take a little bit of a break and then get back to it. You know, as we as we get things cranking again, there's going to be a lot of different, you know, new uh, new tricks being learned by the old dogs and a lot of new dogs coming into the race. It's going to be a lot of fun. So we hope that you'll uh, hang with us. Uh, find out more at progresstexas.org. Thanks, everybody, for being on here. Uh, make sure and check out our uh, social platforms, our Twitters, our Facebooks, our Instagrams, our TikToks. And uh, have yourself a wonderful rest of your day. We'll catch you next time. The Progress Texas Happy Hour is a production of Progress Texas, a rapid response media organization promoting progressive messages and actions. Find us online at progresstexas.org and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The podcast is produced by me, Chris Mosier, and our featured music is by Walker Lukens. Please be sure and subscribe to the Progress Texas Happy Hour on the podcast platform of your choice. Take a moment to leave us a review if you've enjoyed the show, and be sure and tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening and for all you do to press progress forward here in the Lone Star State. We'll see you again next week.